Shalom, everybody. I'm Liel K. Bridgeford, and this is Unmarginalized. Before we jump in, please note that the following episode contains discussions about ableism. So please take care as you listen and check out our show notes for support options. This week on the show, I have Jess Kapusinski Evans. Jess is a theatre maker, sings with the creep folk trio the Bear Brass Asylum Orchestra, and recently formed the Waiting Room Arts Company which commissions work in a range of disciplines by emerging artists. Jess won a Green Room Award for her role in A Normal Child, and in her writing, she enjoys playing with existing texts, music, and other pop culture references. Welcome, Jess. Hi. (laughs) So, Jess, can you start by telling us about kind of what aspects of intersectionality do you navigate? Ooh, okay. So, um, when when I do public gigs now I and especially because this is an audio format um I describe myself as a smallish woman in a large wheelchair and I also describe myself as quad and anxious um which is kind of like a shorthand for my day-to-day experiences without giving people my full medical history um my political view about that is that that sort of stuff is between me and my doctor. Um, <laughs> whereas, you know, some people like to shout it from the rooftops what conditions they have and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's an ongoing thing in disability spaces. Um, and then I, I also um, identify as queer and I guess, yeah, most of my artistic stuff um has a definitely has a disability connection and then a lot of the time but not always has a queer connection yeah and do you have a feeling of when you first kind of realized you sort of belong to all these groups well so I should also say again because this is an audio format I have cisgendered privilege and white privilege as well which I've only just sort of started to kind of come into but um I guess I what I can share about my disability is that I became disabled when I was 18 months old um so there's so there's this funny photograph that my parents have of um me walking and I have blonde hair um and so the joke is that that's not me um yeah (laughs) Um, I I have no memory of being anything other than a quad woman. Um, so so I've known my whole life that I was disabled and I suppose quote unquote different from a lot of the population, um, especially because I was so I was fortunate enough to go to mainstream schooling and that for my education but um I was um to use this sort of funny expression I was a lot of the time the only crip in the village um (laughs) uh, so I always knew that and then I think I had my first crush on a lady when I was about 13 Uh, (laughs) I think I I've always known that I was 
queer, but I've had, um, I suppose, peaks and troughs of, like, um, expressing that identity and then in practice also I'm discovering that um, there are a few obstacles to being a full member of the queer community if you have um, the extended disabilities that I have. So that's that's kind of my new adventure. Um. <laughs> and I was wondering about that because I read an interview that you've done a few years back and you mentioned that a lot of queer spaces aren't wheelchair accessible as one of the examples. And I was wondering, you know, has that sort of changed in recent years um, or, you know, how how do you find that? Yeah, so it depends, I suppose, what you mean by a queer space. So um, I find that um, a lot of, for example, theatre shows or, um, you know, artistic output by openly queer people um, tends to be in accessible venues. Um, uh, but then if you're talking about things like sex on premises type places um, or some uh, queer only nightclubs, um, they have steps. Um, or like, so there's one venue which has a ramp to get into the ground floor part, but then the rest of the venue is steps only. Um, and, I mean, it's it's kind of, uh, it's not the queer community's fault per se because renovations to old buildings are expensive and the government um, is yet to assist with that in any way. Um, and definitely I think what I experience when I go to queer events that are physically accessible, um, certainly, again, I'm the only one with an obvious disability in that audience or whatever. And is there anything that you kind of think you would like people to know about what it means for you belonging to all these different communities and having this, um, you know, being multiply marginalised, I guess? Definitely. Uh, in general, I think there's a problem with um, folk who are marginalised where it's like because you're marginalised, you spend all your time and energy fighting for your immediate needs um, or, or like sort of by extension, I spend the bulk of my time thinking about disability stuff and I've only just now gone on a but I need to be thinking about all the aspects of my identity and I need to assess how to engage with communities whose experience are not mine. So trans folk, um, migrant refugee folk, um, Indigenous folk, all this kind of stuff. Um, I think it requires people who are who might only have one marginal identity, if they have the energy and brain space to think how they can advocate for somebody else, you know, with obviously meaningful dialogue and stuff because, you know, sometimes, like, allies are good but they need to know 
when they're doing the right thing and when they're actually just making shit worse. Uh. (laughs) Yep. And um, I hope that things like this podcast would help people figure out ways to do that. And if they are, like you say, marginalized only in one way or maybe two ways that are different, um, we can sort of come together, um, hopefully, to kind of create improvements. And I guess you mentioned before about how disability is almost always a part of your art practice and sometimes being queer as well. Can you tell us about your art practice a little bit? What do you do? What do you love? I usually tell people that um, I have a love of dragons and explosions and, like, um, I I firstly come from a place of pop culture like that, Um, but then kind of taking those things from film, TV, novels and going, well, what would happen if I put that on the stage? Um, What would that look like? I think that's a huge part of my practice. And then and then the next sort of layer on top of that is, especially when I'm writing fiction, is what would it look like if this character from Harry Potter was in fact a character who was clearly autistic or blind or whatever. Um, yeah. yeah. And um, so that's that's kind of how I write fiction. And then um, I I do a bit of poetry. Um, and that's very much, I suppose, based on my my lived experiences. Um, when I write poetry, I'm always thinking to write it in language that is not too flowery, for lack of a better word, um, so that it's accessible to somebody who maybe has never read a poem before in their life. Um, or never heard a poem before. Um, and then um, my band, uh, so most of the stuff we've written is about being queer and disabled and we we do, so some of our stuff we wrote and then some of our stuff we've appropriated songs by white men. Um, yeah. Same thing. What does it look like if it's sung by a woman with an obvious physical disability. I love that. And I haven't heard you, I've heard your poetry, but I um, haven't heard any of your band work. So I would love to experience that one day. That would be amazing. If you look at the band website now, um, it's a guy called Tim Hackett, who was the guitarist, but he's left. And so now we're actually an all-girl group, um, which is super cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I've, I mean, thank you for sharing about your art practice. I love how you describe your writing fiction and creating kind of theatre. What is, and also, I don't know if you feel that, but I mean, when I read your work, I feel a lot of humour and sarcasm. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoy that. I mean, are you happy for me to read? There's a part, there's an excerpt from Space that you published in 2018 on the wedding room arts company's website and are you happy for me to read a little bit from there yeah yeah here we go you can be a naughty and an able bod if you really try just take some uppers and soldier on it's good to have your friends around you even if all you do together is sit in silence if you just move your limbs that way and your head that way no one will notice you'll be as normal as possible as functional as possible There, you you look just like a regular person. 
especially if I Photoshop out the control box on your left and the headrest behind your head. If I do a few touch-ups, I can get rid of those bags under your eyes. Jess, can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, so, okay, so spaced. Um, so Liel was involved in the first kind of proper presentation of spaced. Um, so it was a it was a thing around, um, I guess, trying to discuss um, similarities and differences between folks with physical impairments, people who are deaf, and people with psychosocial disabilities like anxiety, depression, but um, obviously more than that. Um, uh, based on my experience of being, like I said, both quad and anxious and sort of realising that there was this divide where um, people with physical impairments don't always include people with um, psychosocial stuff um, in disability spaces. And then similarly, people with psychosocial impairments don't uh, speak publicly about broader disability issues. So it was my way of trying to bring those communities together, I suppose. Um, and that poem was kind of about, um, I mean, it, it came from this thing of how they Photoshop people in magazines. Um, but I guess what I was trying to say was about how um, I used to try to hide various things, um, but also I think there's a tendency for lots of folks with disabilities to be as kind of um, hidden or inconspicuous as possible and that actually that does more damage than, you know, just uh, I think what is it Macy Gray says like letting your fleet freak flag fly. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> definitely. And I think the that kind of um, passage um, or poem is definitely very relatable because absolutely so many people experience that of the the feeling of needing to hide and you know I've experienced that a lot. Um, growing up and it's something that's very difficult to step out of I guess or change because I mean I've explicitly been told growing up to hide my leg you know and that's not even considering all the little ways that we get told that implicitly and what do you think is the role of I guess humor in your art do you kind of use it in a um, conscious way or does it just kind of come out or what you know what's that like a little bit of both. I um, I do feel like um, I tell people that humor is my default setting, um, and that sometimes it gets me into trouble because uh, <laughs> I make inappropriate jokes. But also, um, so there was a very famous, I think it was a PhD thesis written many years ago called "Laughing at the Disabled." So it was basically about uh, a film that was a comedy with actors with disabilities and characters with disabilities. And basically it was sort of talking about how it's okay to laugh at and with us 
certain contexts kind of the same as you would with any other person rather than feeling like, oh, you know, disability must be taken seriously and isn't it tragic that Jess is in a wheelchair and stuff like that. So I, I think, so I used to write exclusively more comic stuff. I kind of realised that actually that ignores or brushes over some of the things that need to be spoken. So now um, I use the Star Wars analogy to try and balance the dark and the light side of the force uh, whenever I write. That's lovely. I also have um, kind of read again some of the poems from Spaced and one of them that really stood out to me was the first one that was actually in the zine that was published in, was it 2021 that we did that? that Yeah. Yeah, last year. And I think the poem is called The Doctor Birthed Me. Is that the name of the poem? Yeah. Are you okay if I, or would you like to read the first stanza? Oh, no, you can read it. I can read it? Okay. The doctor birthed me, and all was well, till I was pronounced disabled. No matter the jargon, no matter the word, I'd now be stuck with a label. Just for me, when I read this poem, and this is obviously just the first stanza of it, I get that feeling of being unheard, um, which is so relatable as a disabled kind of female I guess especially what do you think is the role of art in kind of creating opportunities for us to be heard as people who are multiply marginalized you know in a society that often doesn't allow that so I think I I kind of keep changing my mind about this um as I go through my writing so I used to be like yes, art can change the world. Now I reckon actually art by itself is not enough, I would say, Um, which is why I've started doing some quote-unquote activism with a capital A. Um, I think certainly the reason I started creating poetry and theatre and stuff um, was sort of a way of venting, like um, art therapy, but without calling it that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 that continues to be a, <laughs> a, an aspect of how I work, I suppose. Yeah, like I think if you if there's no other space that you can be heard, then at least you can, you know, put yourself on YouTube or, you know, something um, and maybe someone will listen. Um, But I think um, I also have observed that more practically um, people who are so marginalised that, again, they're just fighting for their sort of right to exist almost, um, don't have the money or the time to actually invest in being an artist. 
So I actually think that we have a long way to go in kind of in the arts land especially to achieving a more representative kind of landscape. And I definitely agree with that. I think even going through and trying to find people to interview for this season, you know, I really want to find people that I want it to be a diverse season and a, an interesting season and I want to be able to give people voices, um, especially people that don't have that platform on a regular basis, but it's kind of difficult to reach sometimes and there's kind of the disconnect between what's happening and some, a lot of people, absolutely. And I really enjoyed that description of how, you know, you just kind of stepped into or moved towards like the activism side of things. What's that been like, you know, the activism with a capital A? So, well, it's very early days yet, but essentially my my kind of main interest at the moment is around... um, more public transport and accessible public transport and kind of making it a viable alternative to driving a car for as many people as possible. So I guess I my one of my new things is that I've been thinking about kind of the intersection between disability kind of issues and environment stuff. Um, Yeah, and I think for me that's the transport thing and then also housing, you know. um, How can we build affordable housing that is also accessible and environmentally friendly? I really love to to see the kind of intersection or the the overlap between activism and art because I think so many... I mean, from my experience anyway, obviously it's not a generalization, but a lot of artists have these kinds of big questions in mind as we're creating whatever art we're creating or as we're just thinking about creating, those things are in the back of our mind or the very front of our mind, depending on what's happening in our lives. So um, so thank you for all that work, Jess. Very important. Um, and I'm wondering if we can talk about the theatre a little bit. You know, you mentioned a, bit, a little bit of the process of what, how you imagine it, how it works, but... Can you talk about what's drawn you to it, um, I guess, initially? And also I'm really curious about what it's like to be in that industry because, as you said before, about, you know, going to like a a theatre show, for example, can be quite inaccessible. And I know that even when I kind of go to perform in even just spoken word um, venues, they are often inaccessible. So what's it like in terms of accessibility and inclusion in those spaces? Yeah, so because I um, work a little bit across different art forms, I I get a, a little sneaky peek into each one. Um, so a lot of theatre venues have at least some, if not really good, access for wheelchairs, whereas a lot of live music venues and, as you mentioned, spoken word venues um, have zero access, so um, it's it's a very um, big kind of mixture, I suppose. Um, and then mostly, I think 
where the intervention needs to be is like, yes, I've spoke, like, we know about the thing of, like, I would like to see disabled characters cast as um, disabled actors, but I think the intervention needs to be more around um, how do we design a theatre um, and then also I think we need to have performances, uh, I mean, works that are when they're written but then also when they begin the production process, um, take into consideration a whole bunch of access techniques so that, um, like, for example, so that there's not just one Auslan night but wouldn't it be great if, every performance was had an Auslan version or something, you know. So um, I think, you know, and some of these things are, are harder than others, but I feel like if the arts was actually properly funded, <laughs> we would be able to do some of that. And I think when I was reading through some of your writing for one of your theatre um, productions, there was in the writing there was kind of often mentions of the Auslan interpreter as a part of that that seems like you've written that in in the process from the start is that right yeah yeah so that's um that's murder she dictated and um it's uh, i suppose thinking about um a quadriplegic woman at the center of a murder mystery um and so with my theatre work, where possible, I try to do it as a devised, a group devised project. So because I find it very hard to sit still by myself in a room and write, um, I, I much prefer to um, write with other people. So we had a deaf um, writer performer and corresponding Auslan interpreter that we worked into the show. That's beautiful. And, I mean, people might not realise some of the space. To, I mean, the project that was happening last year was there was very much that process of creating and writing together, which I found so rich and um, just really meaningful. I don't know. There was something really special about that, just sitting together on Zoom. But still it was together and knowing that, um, you and the other artists there were writing at the same time or thinking at the same time at least as me was, um, I don't know, kind of made my brain tick in a different way. And what about Murder, She Dictated? Is that something that people can go and watch or what's the kind of, where is that at? So the short answer is I have no idea. Um, okay. <laughs> the long answer is I'm planning to finish the script um, by the end of this year and then, then we'll be looking at sort of presentation opportunities. One feature of the Waiting Room Arts Company as well um, is that we're hoping to have a kind of live component and an online or take-home component for each project. Um, for Spaced, that meant the zine, um, but we're going to look into things like having a pay-per-view system for, you know, performances and stuff as well. Yeah. As this measure for um, P 
people who even before COVID couldn't leave the house. And that's a great, definitely a great option. What do you feel, you know, what would you like to see as we're kind of emerging from, I guess, a lot of restrictions? What would you like to see happening across, you know, the art sector in terms of in real life, online, accessibility? What would you kind of in an ideal world, what would you like love to see? So I guess um, you'll notice on my description of Waiting Room Arts Company that um, I, I define what an emerging artist is. Um, and this is a this is hot property in, in arts land because um, I actually have stopped calling myself an emerging artist. I probably would now say I'm early to mid-career reason for that is partly the Green green Room Award um, because I, um, my observation is that there are people working in the industry who have been working for many, many years and still call themselves emerging. And I think the reason for this is because they know that that's how they'll get funding. And I think that's not a sustainable way of working, nor is it fair to say someone who is, you know, a a uni student or, you know, just fresh out of high school and wanting to try and get a grant, but competing with all these kind of quote-unquote elders, right? Um, not that elders shouldn't be funded, but it's it's a question of by the time you've been working for a certain amount of time, you have connections, you also know how the industry works, you also know how to write a grant application. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and so I think we need to reassess more generally the the kind of categories of funding and then I guess the the reason I um put waiting room as a commissioning company is that I think that the 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 thing of actors with disabilities playing characters with disabilities is only really one part of the solution that it needs to happen at the level of you know, the people who are in charge of creation. So whether it's directors, writers, curators, you know, all these kinds of positions need to be people with disabilities for there to be meaningful change. Uh, And the same with other marginalised people too. Although I will say there's a lot of gay white men already, but, you know, so... Bring on the lesbians. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think those are the main ones. And also I think I would like to see online stuff beyond just Netflix and, you know, all the streaming services, even if we, we never have another lockdown again because I think that just opens things up for so many people yeah and unfortunately 
we have seen that being dropped already in a lot of um, events. A lot of events have now said they're only doing in-person and wouldn't record and wouldn't stream online, which is such a shame. But also sometimes, like, um, you know, with depending on the project, it's nice to have a, a physical object that you can take away. So if you go and see an art exhibition, can you buy a painting and then have it in your home or something like that? So I think there's something deeply sort of um, personal and lovely about that way of working as well. I mean, obviously people can't see you, but you've um, kind of leaned back a little bit before. I guess I'm wondering if that's something you want to share in terms of how your, I mean, you mentioned your disability kind of obviously influencing your art, but is there any way, any other ways that it sort of physically can be unexpected, you know, unexpected things can happen and how that influenced maybe your art, your practice, maybe, I mean, yeah, anything like that that you'd like to share? So I guess like um, this is not the case for everyone who's quad, but for me I have a lot of things where I, feel unwell or just tired so um one of the things is that when I write I often write um short bite-sized pieces at a time um so I I always like to explain to people that you know when you go to drama school or you know any of those kind of institutions there's the expectation that you'll work 10 hours a day 12 days a week blah 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 and that model is not definitely not sustainable for me but I would argue that it's not a model that's really sustainable for anyone um so part of it is me going okay today I will just write one poem or I will just focus on two scenes of a play or something like that you know um and then I guess I guess like with my music it's been an ongoing thing because I have limited lung capacity um, so I'm in the wrong profession is what I <laughs> um, how to make the most out of my body um, in a way that so it sounds good but also like I don't kill myself in the process. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a really good point and I think that a lot of the time there's, ex there's particular expectations around, and I spoke about that in um, my last interview with Renee Barker-Mulholland as well, particular expectations about what art should look like or be like. And I think sometimes even that idea of you having to practice every day for a particular amount of time is really unrealistic for a lot of people, myself included. And it's really important to acknowledge that. And for people on the other side of it, you know, reading grant applications or commissioning or creating a lineup for something to understand that and to for that not to be a barrier. And I mean, we've touched on it in different ways, but if there's something that you haven't said about what does intersectionality mean to you? Put it this way, my, my latest thought process is around, um, so being a queer woman with um, the level of disability that I have, um, you can make premises accessible and that's fairly easy, but um, the intervention that I don't have the answer to is um, 
is other queer women finding me desirable? You know, I think um, society kind of um, views the disabled body as kind of ugly and all these sorts of things. Um, so I think that's that's the that's where I'm feeling the intersectionality of my different identities. And then also just like um, having to sort of relearn my history, you know, um, a sort of key disabled folk from the past, but then also, you know, um, you know, feminist history, queer history, all these things that I should know by now because it's been a part of my identity for a long time. But I'm only just starting to now read those texts, you know. So, yeah, because um, I think you have to know where you've come from in order to know where you're going. I agree. Now, the last thing is where can people find you and how can people support your work? You know, all of our listeners should go right now to do that. So tell us what's the best way to do it. Okay, so... Um, Maybe, Liel, the simplest thing is if I um, send you websites and YouTube. Um, but basically the Waiting Room Arts Company and the Bear Brass Asylum Orchestra has um, a website and a YouTube. Um, and the Waiting Room Arts Company website has, I try to uh, as often as possible post excerpts of whatever the company is working on um, on, on that website and then um, pretty soon I hope to um, share work that's, say, been done by artists who might have worked with the company but, but work that they've done elsewhere in the world just to get a sense of, you know, who, who we work with, I suppose. Um, and then, yeah, um, and then Bear Brass, like I said, has a, a YouTube and we're hoping to put some more stuff there and I've been converted to TikTok lately. Oh, so. have you? Yes. Okay. So I will put all of those links in the show notes for people to just check out. So click on those links and go and find all those fantastic works. Thank you, Jess. Thank you so much for coming to Unmarginalised. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Before we go, a grateful thanks to the City of Melbourne Arts Grant 2022 for supporting this episode and the entire second season of the Unmarginalised podcast. I would also like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this episode was produced, the Bunarang people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. As we tell our stories, I want to highlight the traditional owners of this land have been storytellers for generations. If you enjoyed or learned something from the episode, please rate, review and share it with a curious person in your life.